Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Those who remember history selectively are condemned to what? In the modern media age, panic. For a couple of weeks, starting on May 6th, a rebooted Iran war show has been playing across Anglo-American media, at the top table of American punditocracy, and in the social media put out by congresspeople. The assumption is that from some kernel of information, a long-planned redeployment of a U.S. Navy carrier group to the Persian Gulf, suddenly being hyped by National Security Advisor John Bolton as a warning to the Iranian regime, the U.S. is on its way to war. Selective memory kicks in. This is just like the run-up to Iraq. A trial balloon quote from Bolton about credible threats gets the war drums beating. A week after the overhyped carrier redeployment, there was a mysterious attack on four ships near the port of Fujairah in the United Arab Emirates. Little damage, no casualties. This is the Gulf of Tonkin, say those old enough to have long selective memories. War drums along the Potomac start beating louder. All yak news stations fill hours of airtime with speculation. But after a few days, the air seems to go out of the balloon. President Trump himself, as I record this, is walking the whole thing back. In The National, a daily newspaper published in Abu Dhabi and the best source of news from the Gulf, UAE Foreign Minister Dr. Anwar Gargash cautions restraint rather than any further increase in hostilities. Gargash told the National, This has been a turbulent week, even by the standards of the region, but I think the UAE is very committed to de-escalation, peace, and stability. In these times, we need to emphasize caution and good judgment. But it is a very brittle situation. No kidding. In the 40 years since the Iranian Revolution, when hasn't the situation in the Gulf been brittle? The recent misadventures of the U.S. internationally, in Iran and Venezuela, and I will connect the two, stay with me, have more to do with the chaos of the Trump administration than geopolitics. Anyway, to return to Iran, here's a partial Iran-U.S. timeline of tension, a 40-year history of incidents but no wars. 1979, precisely 40 years ago, the Iranian Revolution overthrew American client, the Shah, and installed the current theocratic regime. Following the Carter administration's decision to allow the dying Shah into the U.S., Iranian students stormed the American embassy in Tehran and took 52 American diplomats hostage. They were held for 444 days. This was an act of war by any standard, but there was no war just a failed attempt to rescue the hostages. 1983, U.S. Marine Corps barracks in Beirut blown up by Iranian proxies Hezbollah. 243 Marines die. By any standard, this was another act of war. But no war followed. President Reagan withdrew American forces from Lebanon three and a half months later. 1988. Incidents in the Persian Gulf. A U.S. warship struck an Iranian mine. The U.S. retaliated with attacks on two oil installations. That same year, the U.S. shot down an Iranian civilian airliner over the Gulf. And yet, no war. 
throughout the 1980s. As incident piled on incident, the Reagan administration maintained back-channel contact with Iran to influence the course of the Iran-Iraq war, selling Iran weapons when the going got tough for the regime in its conflict with Saddam Hussein, and, of course, diverting some of the money Iran paid for the weapons to fund the Contras in Nicaragua. In 1996, a massive car bomb exploded outside the Kobar Towers near Dahran in Saudi Arabia, killing 16 U.S. Air Force members. Iran was blamed, an act of war again, but no war followed. In this case, war might not have occurred because, well, as Arab journalist Bari Abdel Atwan reported at the time, the attack was actually the work of al-Qaeda, but official Washington, the Clinton administration, law enforcement agencies, and the permanent government in the media ignored, as it often does, independent reporting from the region that contradicts their preconceptions. Iran equals bad, but useful, and let's not go to war. I got some insight into why in 2001, just after the World Trade Center attacks. I spent a few weeks in Iran. The reforming faction was in control of the government. There was cooperation with the U.S. as it removed the Taliban regime next door in Afghanistan. American journalists obtained visas, comparatively easily. Over a period of two weeks, I glimpsed a country that was the most modern in the Muslim Middle East and afflicted with modern problems, like drug abuse among its disaffected youth. It was a nation that had trading relations with a much wider range of countries than you might expect, a middle class that chafed under the restrictions of the theocrats but didn't want to risk another violent revolution. It was also a society which, via the huge Iranian diaspora in the U.S. and France and Canada, had regular and constant contact with the West. In my reporting from the Middle East, it was not possible to be unaware that Iran was a country that sought the status of regional hegemon and possessed military capabilities surpassed only by those of Israel. This may well be another reason why there has never been major military retaliation against the Iranian regime. A few months after the Taliban were overthrown, the door to Iran was shut by George W. Bush when he included the regime as part of the axis of evil. Tension grew, although in 2003, on the eve of war, transit visas were granted to Western journalists so they could get into Iraqi Kurdistan to cover the overthrow of Saddam. Are you getting the picture of U.S.-Iran relations? Tension, incidents, but no war. Constant back-channel contacts in both nations. Relations with the other country have become a domestic political issue. Change is impossible because the Iranian regime is entrenched by theocratic force, and America, in its imperial phase, may change presidents but has a permanent government, particularly in defense and security matters. Experts stashed in think tanks and in the military educational complex. Each country has its hardliners and its cadres who think some kind of detente is possible. They influence policy up to a point, depending on who actually is running the government. In the U.S., the hardest of hardliners tend to hold sway in the Republican Party. This state of affairs leads in the U.S. to lunacy like Republican support for the M.E.K., the Mujahideen el-Khalq, an Iranian cult that is a cross between the Moonies and the Larouches, but with guns, and the intent to use them against the regime. 
Long living in exile, their numbers down to a few thousand, John Bolton addressed the group in 2017, before he was appointed National Security Advisor. He promised the MEK they would be in power before the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution in autumn of this year. Well, maybe not. That's the history that frames this moment and should temper people's panicked response to ceaseless news channel chat about war drums beating. Besides, there is a more recent chronology to follow to understand what's happening. The week before the Washington war drums started beating for Iran, the Trump administration backed a big push to overthrow the regime of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. The country's opposition leader, Juan Guaido, backed by the U.S., called on the military to join him. Initial reports indicated that some senior military figures were prepared to do just that. Bolton addressed the White House press corps. We see this now as a potentially dispositive moment in the efforts of the Venezuelan people to regain their freedom, which we fully support. Yes, he really said dispositive. Not exactly a rallying cry for those who you expect to risk their lives to bring down a dictator. This is the dispositive moment to the barricades, comrades, is not something Lenin or Patrick Henry or Oliver Cromwell ever came close to saying. Anyway, within 24 hours, it was clear that the military was not leaving its barracks. The administration's interest in the latest attempt to get rid of Maduro ended following a phone call between Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin backs Maduro. Bolton and his co-conspirator, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, went silent on Venezuela. And then, the following week, Iran was back in the frame, and those with selective memories began to panic. But the outcome will be the same because Russia has a dog in this fight as well. Russia and Iran are closely entwined in Syria, propping up the Assad regime. They are geographical neighbors, linked by the Caspian Sea. Regime change, the pipe-bomb dream of John Bolton, or even just a punitive strike, has a potentially disruptive effect on Russia's interests. Vladimir Putin doesn't want his interests disrupted. With Putin and Trump enjoying such good phone relations, it seems very unlikely that war will happen. And this is the history you must not forget to remember the next time you hear Bolton or Pompeo say something dispositive about war with Iran. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. There's more about Venezuela and Iran with tape in the archive section of the website, www.goldfarpod.com. Please visit, and while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.